Okay, well, thank you all so much for joining us again tonight. And it is a pleasure to be with you again. Tonight, we are going to be starting our second seminar. So congratulations, if you've been with us so far, you've concluded the first seminar of the four seminars in this series. And this week, we are starting seminar two, the Founders Charter of Freedom. And the Charter of Freedom is a fancy way of saying our Constitution. So that's what we're going to be studying these next four weeks. If I can get that first slide, Hannah. Before we get started, though, I'd like to acknowledge a special someone. And that is our dear George Washington. It is his birthday today, and he is 292 years old. Um, he was born February 22nd, 1732. And so I hope no one minds, but I've dressed him for the occasion. And this here, these pictures are um, from Monday night. We were celebrating um, the President's Day holiday and kind of combined um, his birthday early. So we did every year we do a, a fancy dinner and we um, do coloring pages for the kids. And I made these um, Fitzhugh rolls, which were from scratch and they were amazing. And they uh, that was one of the re recipes actually from the Mount Vernon website that I shared with you um, a couple of weeks ago. And so it was a big hit the kids had a great time and we um, really enjoyed celebrating our George. Um, so I just wanted to share that all with you tonight and um, just a, a reminder of our great George and how thankful we are for him before we got started today. Um, so if I could go ahead and have that next slide. All right, so here we are at seminar number two, the Founders Charter of Freedom and session one tonight is about article one, the legislative branch. Um, and if you recall, in seminar one, we talked about the events that were leading up to the founding. So all the world events and the explorer, Christopher Columbus and little Joan of Arc. And then we were talking about the men who were raised up for the very purpose of, of founding this nation. And we, we remember about Samuel Adams and the Boston Tea Party and all of the um, other great men that came together at this specific point in time. And then the war that set us free and George Washington. And then last week we were talking about how they were working so hard to put together this constitution and, and James Madison was taking his copious notes in, in the session and they finally all came together and signed the wonderful constitution that we have now. And um, I, I also wanted to, to, uh, to remind you that God really cares that his children are under government that allows us to worship him freely. And so this is a very worthy cause to study this constitution that we are under. And I remember last year I was at a parade, a 4th of July parade, and I was handing out our Mom for America constitutions because I love to hand them out to people because I want everyone to know what they say. And one of the moms that I, I gave the constitution to her son and I heard him say, mom, what is this? And she said, this is our constitution and uh, this is so we can know what it says. And I just, I loved it. I had to move on. So I didn't have a chance to like engage her in a conversation, but I loved what she said and how she replied to him because she inferred in her response that it was important that he know what it says. 
And that is so true. And it's so true for all of us. And so I was so pleased that this mama got it. And I hope she went home and started teaching it to him. But, you know, this is something that we all need to study. Young, old, it doesn't matter. We all need to know what it says. And then we need to hold our leaders accountable when it's not being followed. And that's unfortunately the current state that we're in. Um, so we're going to learn about the Constitution. And, and by the end of this time of study, I think you'll know probably more than well, definitely most Americans, but even more than maybe some of your congressmen and women, um, because this is a pretty in-depth course. It's it's four hours of constitutional study, so we're, we're zipping through it, but it's really kind of dense and chock full of stuff. So I hope that um, I can make it kind of fun and easy to go through for you as we're as we're tackling this this task of of looking through the Constitution, which is, you know, it can be very complicated. People spend years in law school studying the Constitution. So the next four lessons will really cover the highlights of the founders formula for a free and prosperous America. Um, on July 4th, 1776, we had our Declaration of Independence, and it wasn't until 11 years later that our Constitution would be signed. And then 13 years later, it would be uh, two years after that 11 years, so 13 total until it would be completely ratified and adopted. So it was uh, it was uh, signed and sent to Congress on September 7th, 1787. And we talked about that last week. And then James Madison and uh, John Jay and Alexander Hamilton started writing those Federalist papers and they would go out into the newspapers and people would be able to understand what the constitution said and how it would work and how it would apply to them. So it was really trying to um, get it into the hearts and minds of the American people so that they would really accept it as the law of the land. And after only eight days of hearings, Congress approved that constitution and sent it to the states without any changes. And then in June of 1788, it was ratified, making it the law of the land. And then in 1789, it was adopted officially by all the states. And then, as we know, George Washington became president shortly after that. And um, each state was invited to call a special convention of delegates selected by the people to ratify that constitution and then make it the manifesto of the people. So if I can have that next slide as well. So this is a a brief outline of the constitution. And I highly recommend that you print it off and just stick some copies like in your purse or books that you're reading, maybe your Bible, something somewhere where you'll see it consistently as we go through these next four weeks. And it's a great little, just quick overview of the entire constitution. And um, it's very helpful little study tool, little cheat sheet for you there. Um, so I would highly recommend getting this printed out and then if I can see that next slide. So Ledge Cesar. Ledge Cesar is our acronym for the seven articles of the Constitution. So if I can see the next slide, it'll show the breakdown of what each of these letters means. So L is legislative, executive, judicial, states' rights, amendments, Supremacy Clause and Ratification, Ledge Cesar. So you can easily remember those seven articles if you remember this acronym. So write that down and put it maybe on the top of that outline. I think it was on the top of that outline, but you can write it down and that will help your brain to remember it as well. 
Um, but that's the easy way to kind of compartmentalize these seven articles of the Constitution. So tonight we're going to be only focusing on the legislative um, article, the first article. It's the longest article and it has 10 sections in it. And so I'm going to have to go pretty quickly through it all, but I want to give you all this um, prep on the front end so that we have a better understanding of where we're starting from and where we're where what we're learning. Um, I also wanted to let you know that the Constitution, our Constitution is the oldest written Constitution that is still in use today. It's also the shortest at only about 7,000 words. But the words that it says are so critical and so important to our success because at one point we were only 6% of the world's population, but we were creating 50% of its wealth because of this wonderful document that... Um, ensures and promotes liberty and freedom and prosperity for everyone. So it's a it's an amazing document. Love to study it and God will bless you as you learn. And if you really want to learn, the best way to do that is to take what you learned tonight and teach someone else. Teach your children, teach your family, teach your friends, tell them what you learned because that will help you to retain the information. And I can tell you that firsthand that I've been through this course like three or four times and I have never gotten it as fully as I have trying to teach it because I spend time, you know, getting ready to give the information. And so that's when you really learn it for yourself. Um, if I can get the next slide, please. Okay, so I am not a constitutional scholar at all. And this book here, The Making of America, is your go-to for any questions that you'll have throughout this next four weeks. Um, it tells you line by line what the Founding Fathers intended as they were creating the Constitution. And so it's a very valuable book, and I would highly recommend you picking it up. Um, so if, if I talk about some section of the Constitution and you're not really sure what I meant or if I was saying the right thing or talking about something confusing, this is the, the source for you to go and, and check out um, you know, what, what's going on with the Constitution in that particular area. Um, and if I can have that next slide. Okay, so if you remember last week, we talked about how the Committee of Style uh, put together the final um, touches to the Constitution and Governor Morris from Pennsylvania, the guy with the peg leg um, from a carriage accident, he was the one that was a lawyer and he set forth those uh, six main purposes of good government in the preamble. And it's the probably the most famous part of the Constitution because it is the beginning. And so most people recognize the we, the people, and then they some people know the preamble, but not everyone knows it. Um, but it's it's a wonderful wonderfully written preamble because it really summarizes um, summarizes our constitutional rights and privileges and it reminds people of those and then it also guides the legislators and it guides the courts as well as to what purpose of this document is for. So the, the uh, preamble to the constitution reads this, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. 
And so these are really sweet little hand motions here that um, they've put together for being able to easily memorize this preamble. And I will tell you that it really works to have these hand motions to go with it. And it's very easy to teach children and grandchildren with these hand motions because it's it's a great memory memorization tool. So I'm gonna show you how it goes and then I will show you how my daughter does the preamble because it's so adorable, but just to prove the point that very young children can pick this up pretty easily um, because she was two when she did this. And some of you may have already seen the video too, but here it goes. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, uh, establish justice, um, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, do ordain and establish, so it's like you're, you're pushing down, like you're establishing something, uh, and do it and establish this constitution like you're unrolling a scroll for the United States of America. So now I'll show you my daughter doing the same, which is so cute. <laughs> so I hope you'll humor me, but she was two when she did this. The people of the United States of America in order to form a perfect union, establish justice, and so do Mr. Kennedy provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, secure the best in the living. What is this? For ourselves. For ourselves and all, and all posterity. <laughs> You're doing great. Keep going. Do ordain. Do ordain. Establish this constitution for the United States. The United States of America. <laughs> Can I see myself? Oh, I hope you enjoy that as much as I do. <laughs> it never gets old for me, but I'm her mom. So what can I say? But yes, little children, and they will remember it too. Like we will put it down for, you know, several months and then come back to it and they will pick it right back up again. And so sometimes we just do it again for fun during family devotional time or, you know, just around the house to, to practice, but it's so fun and it's a great way to learn. So I just wanted to share that with you all because it's, it's a pretty easy thing to do. If you do it, you know, five or six times, you'll, you'll have it. And I think I may have screwed up the hand motions on mine, but she did it the right way. So there you go. Um, but it's a wonderfully succinct introduction to the constitution. Every American needs to learn the preamble and, um, there is an explanation of, of each line of it in the back of the book too, so you can check that out. Um, but it's interesting that the, 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 legisla the uh, legislative uh, section article of the constitution is the largest and it's the first, and they wanted to really 
pronounced the fact that the government was going to be deriving its power from the voice of the people. And so one of the most important provisions of the Constitution is Article 1, Section 1, which reads, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. So this was really giving people that, that right to not be subject to any federal laws unless they'd been reviewed and approved by the majority of people people's representatives. So the section article uh, section seven article one really covers the procedure for passing laws. And this is really why you can refute when you have any executive orders or Supreme Court rulings that are coming in and being presented to you as law because they haven't been through the Senate and House of Representatives. And that's what the constitution says that our laws should be. Um, but gradually the executive and judicial branches of the gov government began to usurp this authority. And we will talk more about these attacks on our charter of freedom in seminar number three. Um, and we'll learn more about how they have slowly eroded what the constitution was supposed to be um, to, to get it where it is today. Um, if I can have the next slide, Hannah. So we're going to talk about the two houses, the two uh, sections. There's the House of Representatives and the Senate. And so we start with the House of Representatives. So it says promote liberalism. This means that they are liberal with our resources because they want to solve problems and they want to solve problems quickly so that they can get reelected because they're only elected for two year terms. And they are elected by the people. And then also the states get to decide what the qualifications are that a person must have to vote for a representative. So I think back in the day, there was you know, the question of whether women could vote or not. But before that amendment was uh, passed, the 20th amendment, um, they, they actually, or no, it was not the 20th amendment. Uh, the, the one with, uh, being able to let women vote. Uh, before that passed, 20 states already were, were allowing women to vote. So it's kind of a silly thing, but just wanted to let you know that part. And then uh, let's see here. The qualifications of those representatives are that they need to be 25 years old, have been a citizen at least seven years, and there are 435 representatives in the house and it used to be that uh you know th the amount of representatives was increasing as more and more people you know were living in in america but by 1929 that's when they made a law that stipulated that the number could not be increased beyond 435 so as our population has increased, each representative is responsible for representing more people. And so now it's about 700,000 people that each uh, congressperson is representing from their district. And that's you know on average, obviously. Um, so the, uh, the uh, impeachment process can be initiated in the House. Um, and they can also expel obnoxious members with a two thirds vote, which I thought was very interesting. There are currently 
219 Republicans and 212 Democrats in the House. There's also four vacancies currently. And I looked up a website today called crsreports.congress.gov. And that website basically gives you sort of stats and breakdown of what the current, the 118th Congress is made up of. It was a pretty interesting report. It was only about like 10 pages or so. So if you wanted to check that out and find out more kind of stats about this Congress, you can. Um, the House is authorized to choose its speaker as well as any other officers that need it. And the current speaker, as you know, is Mike Johnson from Louisiana. He has been there since October of 2023, and he is aged 52. Only the House can initiate those impeachment proceedings, uh, like I mentioned, and they can expel by two-thirds vote. And then if I can see this slide for the Senate. So senators represent state sovereignty. So they were supposed to be elected by the state legislatures initially until 1913 when we had an amendment to the constitution which made it so that the senators were also elected by the people. And so because of that, they started acting more like house uh, delegate uh, representatives and that threw off the checks and balances uh, in in the Congress. So. If it is in the uh, Senate that all the states, regardless of their size or population, are equal in representation. So every state has two senators and they serve for six years and each senator has one vote. And Thomas Jefferson actually asked Washington, like, why is there a Senate for six years? And Washington explained that they are to act as a saucer to cool your tea in. So it's a it's a slowed down process because they're going to be there for six years. It's almost like a cooler heads will prevail type of mentality that they need to be conserving the resources and asking, well, are we able to solve the problems? What will this do to our state? But as I mentioned, with that amendment in 1913, they are also trying to get goodies and money and get reelected at this point. So there's really an imbalance there that has not been a positive thing, a positive change. Um, so some of the qualifications are that they need to be at least 30 years old, they have to be a citizen for at least nine years, and they have to be an inhabitant of the state that they represent. So the youngest senator right now is John Ossoff, and he's 37, and the oldest is uh, Chuck Grassley, who is 89. The Senate does not get to choose its presiding officer, who is always the vice president, and they have the exclusive responsibility of determining guilt in impeachment trials. So if you recall, President Trump was impeached twice by the House, but he was not convicted of in the Senate on either occasion. So that's the most recent example in our lives of seeing this play out. Um, so we can go on, I believe, to the next section. Oh, yes. Okay. We'll do that in just a second. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, it is interesting that the times, places, and man manner of electing senators and representatives was left up to the states, but there was a provision that Congress could alter the arrangements if necessary. So there was no alterations until 1842 
And then states were required to elect their representatives from specific districts instead of electing them at large, as had been the case prior to that. And then the next time that they sort of altered that was in 1866, when all the states were required to hold their elections on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. So since then, most federal laws dealing with elections have been, you know, more directed against fraud or corrupting the political process, but they haven't been about the the times, places, and manner. So that's just a little interesting tidbit I thought that I'd share with you. Um, they also have changed it. So they used to have to assemble on the first Monday in December so that there would be sufficient time to prepare for the president's inauguration on March 4th. Um, the 20th Amendment changed it to the third day. Oh, that was the 20th Amendment. Changed it to the third day of January and the president's inauguration to January 20th. So this was um, the lame duck amendment. And so it used to be that there was four months between the time that a person was elected and then when they made it to office. And that was just because back in the day, people needed time to get their, you know, households settled and their affairs in order and load up their wagons and, you know, carriages and all this stuff and get to get to Washington, D.C. But now things go much faster. So they um, they changed that so that there would be a more fluid um, transition. So let's go to that next um slide the one that we just had up about the schoolhouse rock so section five of of this um of this article is about the rules of order and then section six is about salary but uh we're gonna skip through that because we're running out of time <laughs> And I'm just going to show you this Schoolhouse Rock video. This is section seven now of article one, the procedure for the passing of laws. So you may remember Schoolhouse Rock, I'm just a bill. Um, this is a cute little video and it just gives you a brief explanation of how the process works. Um, this was like made for kids, but I love it because I need things in this kind of simplistic term. So if we can go ahead and play that video now. You sure gotta climb a lot of steps to get to this Capitol building here in Washington. Well, I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the Capitol City. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. Gee, Bill, you certainly have a lot of patience and courage. Well, I got this far. When I started, I wasn't even a bill. I was just an idea. Some folks back home decided they wanted a law passed, so they called their local congressman, and he said, you're right, there ought to be a law. Then he sat down and wrote me out and introduced me to Congress, and I became a bill. And I'll remain a bill until they decide to make me a law. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I got as far as Capitol Hill. Well, now I'm stuck in committee, and I'll sit here and wait while a few key congressmen discuss and debate whether they should let me be alone. I hope and pray that they will, but today I am still just a bill. 
of those congressmen arguing. Is all that discussion and debate about you? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. Most bills never even get this far. I hope they decide to report on me favorably, otherwise I may die. Die? Yeah, die in committee. Oh, but it looks like I'm going to live. Now I go to the House of Representatives and they vote on me. If they vote yes, what happens? Then I go to the Senate and the whole thing starts all over again. Oh, no. Oh, yes. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And if they vote for me on Capitol Hill, well, then I'm off to the White House where I'll wait in a line with a lot of other bills for the president to sign. And if he signs me, then I'll be alone. But today I am still just a bill. You mean even if the whole Congress says you should be a law, the president can still say no? Yes, that's called a veto. If the president vetoes me, I have to go back to Congress and they vote on me again, and by that time you're so By old, that time, it's very unlikely that you become a law. It's not easy to become a law, is it? No, but how I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill. He signed your bill, now you're a law. Oh, yes! <laughs> I love that. It's so funny and cute and such an easy explanation for it. But originally, as I mentioned, the senators represented their states rather than the populace of their states. And so all bills involving appropriation of funds have to be initiated in the House of Representatives, whose members are spokesmen for the taxpayers of their states. And this is still the rule, um, even though senators today, by virtue of the 17th Amendment, are also elected by the people of their states rather than being appointed by the state legislature as the founders had originally intended. So once a bill has been passed by the House, then the Senate can offer amendments if it desires, and when a bill is introduced, it's simply given a number and then sent to the appropriate committee and there it will um, be discussed. And if, uh, if it, it'll die, unless the person introducing it has sufficient support to get the bill brought before, um, oh, before the committee for hearing at that time. And then if the committee then sends it to the floor for discussion or the house in question votes it out of the committee, then the bill is publicly discussed, amended, and then finally voted upon. And if it's approved, it must go to the other house where it may die or be approved. And if the other house amends the bill, then it has to go back to the original house for approval of the modified version. So the bill cannot go to the president until both houses have approved the identical measure. So they have to get them kind of matching before they can be approved. And when a bill arrives on the desk of the president, he has 10 days to consider it. If he takes no action, then the bill automa automatically becomes a law. But if he objects to any part of it, he can send it back to Congress and it cannot become a law unless they satisfy his objections or if they have two thirds of vote, they can override his veto. Um, currently there are, um, let's see, 287, Oh, you would need, I'm sorry, for the two thirds, that means 287 members of the House and 66 members of the Senate. But this rarely ever happens because the president is so plugged into what's happening and he has lobbyists in Congress and they're all communicating. And so you really don't see much vetoing anymore because he's already kind of said, I'm not going to sign this the way that it is. And so they just avoid that that process for the most part. Um and then another interesting thing is that unsigned bills uh, do not become law 
it is as though the president has placed them in his pocket and forgotten about them. This is called the president's pocket veto. Um, so that's just a, an interesting thing. You may have heard pocket veto before, and I, I always kind of had a question about that too. So here we go into section eight, and this is the big section. So I'm gonna have to really move through it here because I know we're running out of time. But in 1776, the states had refused to delegate enough authority to Congress to enable them to do their legitimate functions. And then as a result, we almost lost the Revolutionary War. If you recall, we had only those Articles of Confederation, which were really weak, and we couldn't get any money from the states or anybody to really cooperate with our needs for the war. So. Now we're going to discover which powers or duties the states were willing to delegate to the federal government. And there's 20 enumerated powers. So Congress has these 20 enumerated powers. So thank you, Hannah, for the slide. Um, so clause number one, or power number one, is the power to tax. Um, now the powers to tax uh, says that it will be uniform throughout the United States. And in connection with the taxing power, this clause states that revenues can only be expended for the general welfare of the whole nation as it carries out a list of duties that it sets forth. These funds are not to be spent on individuals or special groups or specific geographic locations. Um, this clause was designed by the founders to be a limitation on the taxing powers of Congress. However, when Alexander Hamilton became Secretary of the Treasury, which was under George Washington, he argued that this clause was a general grant of power which allowed Congress to tax and spend money for any good cause, regardless of whether it was among the enumerated powers or whether it was for local or special welfare rather than general welfare. Now, he had never presented this idea at the Constitutional Convention because it would have been immediately rejected because it really torpedoes the whole entire idea of a limited government. And so what happened was, uh, you know, Hamilton was opposed immediately when they were arguing uh, by Jefferson and Madison, who, who emphasized that the original intent of the founders in having the national government carry out its assignment would be, uh, would be to benefit the nation as a whole, not the special groups or the special regions. So the founder's original intent generally prevailed until 1936 when the Supreme Court virtually amended the Constitution by a judicial opinion in what's called the Butler case, which we will be talking about a lot throughout this next four weeks and even beyond. Um, you can see the appendix in your Seminar 2 workbook, um, and it will tell you what that case was and sort of the details of the case and how that um, how that ruled. But the point that you need to know is that Justice Roberts, not our Justice Roberts today, but the one that was on the bench then, was joined by four other justices in handing down a dictum that said that thereafter Congress could follow Hamilton's doctrine of taxing and spending money for any cause it considered beneficial. So this was horrible. This was an awful ruling. And this was, you know, it was really just an idea of Hamilton's, but they used it as a basis for their entire ruling. And so this unconstitutional dictum really opened the floodgates for the treasury to virtually just have unlimited, you know, looting and spending basically. And uh, clause one also provides that taxes of all kinds um, shall be applied uniformly. So, you know, Congress or the Supreme Court interpreted this to mean geographical uniformity 
rather than a uniform assessment of individual citizens. So geographical uniformity, meaning everyone in the country has to pay, you know, on our graduated scale based on what they make. And so hence let's, you know, soak the rich where what the founders really intended was probably something closer to tithing. And Ben Carson actually has a book where he mentions that tithing is, you know, 10% and that's across the board. Now, if somebody makes a million dollars and they pay 10%, they're going to pay more than somebody that makes a thousand dollars and pays 10%. So it's, it's a fair system of, of taxing. Um, but that has been ignored obviously. And this ruling has really, um, you know, negatively impacted all of us since then. Um, so it actually also violates, uh, the graduated income tax violates the equal protect protection of rights clause, which is the first clause of the 14th amendment, which we will eventually talk about as well. Um, so then it talks about borrowing money uh, within this same, uh, uh, this is the, the next enumerated power. They will have the power to borrow money uh, on the credit of the United States. Now that is with the intention of paying it back. We have at this point excessive debt and we also have unstable currency due to inflation. And these were the two factors that seriously damaged the credit of any government. And so, uh, you know, this is, we're not in a good place where that is concerned, as you know. Um, in September of 2023, when I started studying and preparing to teach all these courses to you today, we were at $33 trillion in debt. And as of today, only, you know, six months later, we're already at 34 trillion. So if you go to the usdebtclock.org, it has this layout and spreadsheet that shows how much every person in America is on the line for, how much the debt is increasing, um, total national debt, all these different numbers broken down for you. And you can just see it ticking. Now that'll make you crazy if you watch it for too long. <laughs> but I, I checked it out today and I was really appalled to realize that we had already gone up another trillion dollars within about six months time frame. So that's pretty troubling. Uh, to say the least. Principle of Liberty number 27 says that debt is as bad as subjugation by conquest. And our founders knew that. The Bible also says that the borrower is slave to the lender. And Americans are facing a monumental burden in the form of national debt, which exceeds the total debts of all the other nations in the world combined. And so the credit of the United States can be seriously damaged um, uh, if it pays off its debt with money that's been cheapened by inflation. And inflation is de defined as the unnatural expansion of the money supply so that it reduces the buying power of the money that's already in hand, also known as theft. But that's where we are today, unfortunately, um, due to the power to uh, to borrow money. But we need that's why we need virtuous and moral leaders who will be willing to stand up and say, no, we don't need to spend this kind of money um, and that we shouldn't be putting our children and our child grandchildren in debt because that's really not the right thing to do next up they can regulate commerce so international and interstate commerce this is the third power of congress 
They have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the states and with the Indian tribes is what the clause says. Now they get to use, they get to use that now to say that they want to get involved within the states. And we saw during COVID how they were really regulating businesses. You know, OSHA can come in and, and tell you what to do with your business now, the, the health and safety regulations. Um, the Obamacare mandate, that was a health insurance mandate, um, which was actually declared unconstitutional in 2012, but still it was, you know, for a while there, it was being uh, being perpetrated onto us. Um, but it's it's uh, it's really not right the way that they are trying to regulate the commerce within the states, um, where it only says that they have the right to do it among the states. And that includes interstate commerce as well. Uh, let's go on to power number four. They can establish the rules of immigration or naturalization. Uh, they can establish the rules of bankruptcy. I'm just going to go through these a little bit faster here because we're running out of time. They can fix, they can coin money and regulate value to have standard weights and measures because there was time uh, during, I think, the Revolutionary War where the standards were off. Also, the gold standard. In the year since the gold standard ended, 1971, under Nixon, Debt has exploded. In 1960, there was a little only, uh, it was only a little over half the size of our economy. Now that it's more than 130% of our economy, going back on the gold standard is probably not even feasible at this point. Um, power number seven, to fix the standards of weights and measures. Uh, that's to establish uniformity and prevent fraud. And then power number eight is to provide punishment for counterfeiting. Power number nine, to establish post offices and roads. We do need that. That's true. Uh, power 10, to grant copyrights and patents. 11, to establish federal courts inferior to the Supreme Court. Uh, we will cover that and discuss it in detail when we cover the judiciary in Article 3. Um, power 12, to punish piracies, felonies, and offenses against nations. And the Congress was given the responsibility um, to uh, punish the piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the laws of the nations is how that clause reads. Um, so all of these offenses are outside of the jurisdiction of any state. Uh, power number 13, to declare war. Congress, rather than the president, was given the responsibility of making all the initial decisions concerning the waging of war. Congress has the authority to declare war, and two of the biggest mistakes this nation ever made was to send hundreds of thousands of people into the Korean War and the Vietnam conflict without a declaration of war by Congress, and Congress can authorize the granting of uh, letters of marquee and reprisal. Such a letter is an authorization to a private citizen, allowing him to seize booty or make arrests as an official of the United States. Uh, power number 14, to establish rules dealing with captures on land or sea. And 15 is to raise and support armies, which we have to have a strong army. That's one of our principles of liberty. We have to uh, maintain strength. And so uh, this was, you know, they said we can't have appropriation for this purpose beyond two years. And that was to 
to prevent the president from building up a large standing army during peacetime and using it to seize and hold power. But really, the Congress was empowered to provide and maintain a navy. Um, at the time of the Revolutionary War, the new nation had no navy. And so John Paul Jones joined a number of other hardy souls to use private vessels operating under letters of marquee and reprisal to fill, to fill that need. Um, and so this pr provided for the creation of a naval force under government command. And Congress, not the president, should make the rules and regulation for both the land and naval forces. Uh, number 17, 17th power, is to call up the state militias. So I don't know if any of any of you on this call are, are uh, if we have any men joining us tonight, but if you are 17 to 44 years of age, you are subject to be called up as a member of the militia of your state. And governors can also call up the National Guard, search and rescue, and um, I think flood, uh, flood recovery or something like that. Um, an example of Congress calling up the uh, militias was during the Biden inauguration. There was 25,000 National Guard and military at that inauguration. And I remember seeing the very large fences that they had put up. And this was all because uh, they were trying to uh, suppress an insurrection. Of course, it was a completely peaceful day and nothing happened, but they were, I think, um, trying to be <laughs> trying to make a point, I believe. Um, but there was more National Guard and military there than we had in Afghanistan and Iraq. So that should put it in perspective for you. Um, Congress also has the responsibility of passing laws and appropriating money for the organizing army and dis or organizing arming and disciplining of the militia so that these military support forces will be uniform uh, quality throughout the United States. And then power 18, to have authority over the place of the seat of government. So this is a really interesting one. Congress was given exclusive authority over the 10 mile square area to be designated as the seat of government. We call that Washington DC. And this was to prevent the area from becoming politicized and subject to a kind of violence which threatened Congress when it had met in Philadelphia. And so the founders were like, we don't want this to happen again. So let's have this little bubble and that will be the seat of government and it will not be a political bubble. Um, but the deterioration of this protective provision began with the adoption of the 23rd Amendment, which gave the District of Columbia three electoral votes in presidential elections. And this was not a good decision or in keeping with our founders original idea in regards to DC because they didn't want that, but they didn't want it to be politicized or violent. But sadly, it's both now and it's a very political place and uh, it's very Democrat and it always is as long as my lifetime, it's always been a very Democrat uh, run. And so it's very interesting how, you know, just these amendments have made such such changes to uh, to what our founders intended and to the balance of power and the checks and balances that were put uh, on us in the first place. Um, the federal government was also authorized by the Constitution to occupy certain areas within a state if such areas were purchased by the consent of the state legislature. And so these were um, just some of the other things that they were able to do. Land could be purchased with the consent of the state legislature for the, for the building of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, buildings, 
um, other needful buildings such as post offices. So if they needed something else, they could purchase it from the state. Um, but what's interesting also is that the first new state that was added to our union was Ohio, meaning after those 13 original, and that was in 1803. But instead of giving the state all of the public lands, the federal government sold them to help pay off the national debt. And the ownership was thereby privatized. The ownership of Ohio was privatized and the state owned it and then immediately went on the tax rolls of the state. And this procedure was followed in all of the new states east of the Mississippi as well as all of the new states in the Louisiana purchase. However, those provisions were ignored when the Western states were admitted to the union. And so the government was unconstitutionally withholding vast sections of each state when they became a state. In fact, when Alaska was admitted, 96% of the land was unconstitutionally withheld and the government still holds 45% of, of, of Arizona um, as recently as 2012. I'm not sure if that's still an accurate stat, but as, 20, uh, as of 2012, it was. Um, and they hold 87% of Nevada and 66% of Utah. And there are several other states that they own a lot of the land. So compare that with Nebraska's only 1%, which was one of the Louisiana purchase states, or Massachusetts, which was 1%, which was one of the original 13 states. Um, and just think the federal government could sell a lot of this land back to the states and help pay down our national debt. And that would help these states to, you know, they could do things privately. They could create businesses, homes, whatever they wanted, but it would be a great idea for, you know, helping our national debt. All right, we've made it to power number 20. And power number 20 is a dangerous one because it's uh, the elastic clause is what they call it. It says that in order to carry out all the above powers, the Congress was authorized to do whatever was necessary and proper. And uh, it's been used to stretch the federal power beyond its legitimate dimensions. It's important to remember that the delegates to the Constitutional Convention were there to re represent the interest of the states. And therefore, they undertook to restrict the National Congress in certain ways. And this had never been done before. National legislatures, including uh, England's parliament, had always considered themselves supreme and unrestricted in their lawmaking powers. And here are the ways in which the United States Congress was to be restrained by constitutional restrictions. So this goes into now section nine. There are 10 sections of this, this first article. Section nine talks about slavery issue. Um, so I will briefly mention that as I know that we're getting close to the end of the time here because I wanted to quickly go through that last, uh, that last, that section number 10 of of this article, but section nine talks about slavery. Until 1808, no restriction was to be placed on the import in the importation or immigration of any persons, uh, referring to primarily slaves, of course, uh, which any of the states may consider proper. And so they had agreed, if you recall, we talked about this before, uh, there was an agreement that they came to that they would allow 20 years for phasing out slavery um, it is important to remember that, you know, the consensus of the convention was that slavery was on its way out. They all knew that it was it was going to be over with soon. They wanted it gone. And they actually, a lot of them never wanted it in the first place because Britain had, had basically imported it and made them keep it even when they didn't want it. So it, it had been here 
primarily because of England. Um, but even in the South, only one out of uh, 17 white households owned slaves, but these slaves were considered property. So many of them were mortgaged to European banks. And if they had freed all these slaves, then they would have been having a uh, horrible, uh, you know, economic problems in the South because their liens, foreclosures, losses of collateral, they would have had, you know, economic ruin in the South, which would have eventually also affected the other states. Um, but basically the three states, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia had threatened to secede from the Union unless they were allowed those 20 years to prepare for the phasing out of slavery. And the other 10 states decided it was best to work on nation building and get everybody together first and then deal with that slavery after that 20 year period. And before they agreed to do this, the Northern states had demanded that the Southern states agree to give federal government power to regulate their interstate commerce. And then the South agreed and that was settled. And these were two of the three main compromises that were found in the constitution. Now, if I can see that next slide, Hannah, um, this is, I think this is, yeah. So the gentleman there in the, uh, suit is Al Jackson. That's Julene Jackson's husband. You remember Julene, our, our teacher here at Moms for America. And uh, he gave an excellent speech. It's about an hour long and we'll, we'll link it for you and you can, you can access it. Uh, but we highly recommend that you listen to it uh, because he really talks about this whole issue and explains it in more detail. But he talks also about how the three-fifths clause, you know, a lot of enemies of our Freedom and our founders will say that, oh, they only thought that, you know, slavery, slaves were worth three-fifths of a person and not even worth a whole person, but actually has nothing to do with it. Um, they were actually trying to stop the South from having more representation because there were so many slaves in the South that if they had counted them as, as, as you know, full, uh, it would have increased their numbers so that they would have had more representation and then they could have potentially kept slavery longer because they would have been voting to keep it longer. And so it had nothing to do with thinking that they were three fifths of a person and had much more to do with trying to limit the South from having that extra representation um, counted towards them. And then he also talks about uh, that there was, there's never the word slave mentioned one time in the constitution. And that's because they knew that it was it was wrong and they wanted it to be gone and they didn't want to even acknowledge or give it that, that credit in in the in the writing of the Constitution because they wanted it to be for all people, including the slaves, and they wanted them to be free and to live just as us. So that's why they didn't even mention it in the Constitution at all. Um, and we will talk about this more uh, along the way, but um, it's it's a issue that a lot of uh, times it gets so uh, uh, so put upon the the founders to to detract from what they did and to try to really um, call into question you know their Christianity or or their their virtue or their character. Um, but we know from our understanding of the details of the history and the true history of it that these people wanted to have the freedom and the liberty and the justice for all. And that's why they wrote the constitution that they, the way that they did when they said, we, the people, meaning 
all of us who live here in America. And so I just want to encourage you all to check that out if you have a have a chance to check out that that uh, that speech because it's a really great one, and it really explains so so well this this whole issue and gives you much greater understanding about about it all really. Um, so then there's some other clauses of that section nine, which we'll we'll skip through in the effort to keep time going here. Um, section 10 talks about the restrictions on states. And so these were things, there, there were things that the states were absolutely forbidden to do. And then there was things that they were forbidden to do unless Congress consented. And so the things that they were absolutely forbidden to do is enter treaties, alliances, or confederations. Um, that's part of the whole Civil War thing was the confederation of states. Um, grant letters of marquee or reprisal. Um, coining money, emitting bills of credit, paper money, using anything but gold or silver to pay debts, passing any bill of attainder, passing any ex, ex post facto law, meaning retroactive criminal statutes, passing any law impairing contracts. This one's funny. Granting any title of nobility, because we did not want any nobility in our country. We wanted to be all, all equal, right? Um uh, let's see, the ways that the states could not, uh, here's what the states cannot do unless they get the permission of Congress. Um, so this was laying any duty on tonnage coming into a port, imposing duties on imports or exports, uh, maintaining troops or ships of war in time of peace, entering any agreements or compacts with another state or engaging in war unless invaded or in such imminent danger that there's no time for an opportunity to obtain the consent of Congress. So what's important with these enumerated powers is not necessarily what's listed, but what maybe what's even not listed. So you didn't see anything about healthcare, welfare, education. So they've really taken a lot of liberties uh, with what they're supposed to be involved with. And then you know, Congress has also maybe abdicated or given tougher decisions to the president or let him decide like, okay, we'll go to war um, when if they had backbone and moral and virtue and, and, and sincere character, uh, maybe they would have, you know, stood up and said, no, we're not going to do this. So uh, anyway, it's very interesting. And <laughs> in session one, we have discussed the 20 duties or the powers assigned to the federal government. And we also studied the things that Congress is forbidden to do and the things that the states are forbidden to do and the things that the states cannot do unless Congress consents. On our next session, we're going to examine the most powerful political office in the world, the president of the United States and the functions of the judiciary. And uh, let's see, maybe the next slide there, Hannah, I think is about the uh, resources that they can, yeah. So here is the copy of the Constitution. I suggest you read it for yourself. And then the Making of America, again, great resource for following up and studying. And then the Catechism on the United States Constitution is a great book. Uh, it's the Socratic Method. So this is how they used to teach the Constitution to children in schools. And it basically asks a question, poses it to the reader, and then you read the answer. So they would go through that back and forth, back and forth until they could memorize the answers. It's very good, very good way to, to try to study it.
And then the next slide, Hannah, is that reminder of the outline of the Constitution. So be sure to print that out and keep it with you, reference it whenever you need it. And then again, the next slide is one of my favorite verses of the Bible, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And I believe the Bible is true and the inspired word of God. And I take it quite literally. And so I'm very encouraged when I read that verse. And I just commend you all for being here because you come faithfully to this class. And I know that the Lord will be faithful to help you to learn this material and to implement it into your lives in various ways. The very best way, like I said, to learn is when you are teaching it. So when you have have learned it, be sure to give it away to someone else so that you can really absorb it and keep it. And then when you're working through what you can't remember, or you need to double check something or you're struggling with understanding, that's when it really starts to click for you because you're having to put in a little bit of effort to, to go and learn it for yourself. Um, you know, I can, uh, I, I go through the book and I look up information online, I make notes and I watch and I rewatch Julene and I, I'm trying to teach these courses. And so I know that this works when you kind of struggle with trying to learn it. It's, you know, over time, you will get to a better place of understanding. So I know it's a little hard to kind of power through an entire article of the Constitution in one hour. So I thank you for um, hanging in there with me tonight. And I will look forward to being with you again next week when we will talk about article number two. And I will look forward to seeing you then.